You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Today to worship with us, and this is the uh, sort of the portion of the service where we open up God's Word and we uh, study it together, and we're going through a section of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and we're looking particularly at the, um, at the ministries of two prophets named Elijah and Elisha, and surrounding these two individuals are some of the most amazing stories in the Bible. If you grew up maybe in church or going to Sunday school or something, you will have heard a lot of the Elijah and Elisha stories because there's a lot of miracles, there's a lot of amazing things that happen. And um, last time we were together uh, in, in the book of Kings, we were looking at Elijah who was running for his life from the evil queen Jezebel, and she said she was going to kill him, so he ran first to the wilderness, then he ran to a cave, and it was in that cave where he was depressed and somewhat despairing, where God spoke to him through uh, what the King James Version calls a still, small voice, and it was there through the voice of God, the Word of God, which the equivalent for us would be the Scripture, the very Word of God, uh, encouraged him to know that he was not alone, but that God had other followers, and he recommissioned Elijah to his task as a prophet, and so he went out and he also appointed his successor, kind of his trainee, who would ultimately one day be his successor, Elisha, and that's where we left. So that was chapter 19. We're skipping chapter 20. In, in, this, in these passages, there's a few chapters we're going to skip because Elijah and Elisha don't appear in them. And so uh, neither one of them appear in 20. So uh, we're going to skip that and go to chapter 21. And this chapter is broken up into three sections. The first section that we'll read together is about injustice. The second section is about justice. And the third section is about mercy. And I think as we read it, you'll be able to see really clearly those themes just sort of shouting at us from the verses. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 16 of 1 Kings 21. Uh, This is God's holy word to us. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Well, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? 
Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in, this, in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the table of the people and, the, and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Section about many things, but certainly about injustice. Ahab is the king of Israel. He's in the northern kingdom. That's why he says he's the kingdom of Samaria. The kingdom of Israel is in two kingdoms, a southern and northern at this point, and he has a palace in Samaria. And so he is the king, and he has taken as a wife Jezebel, who is this foreign pagan. Uh, she's not an Israelite. She's a pagan woman. And they both are worshiping Baal. Baal's a false god, and they've actually instituted Baal worship in Israel. So what they have done is terrible, and most of the sections we've seen where Ahab and Jezebel have appeared, there's been some sort of theme of idolatry, of uh, worship of Baal. That's not the case here. What we see here is we get a picture of how this king and queen abuse their power to get what they want how they abuse their power to get what they want. Uh, They are representative. The king is a delegate, delegated by God to lead righteously, to make Israel a nation that embraces just laws and just practices. The king is to be um, uh, an example of justice, but what happens here is we see him leveraging his power and Jezebel um, leveraging their power to take advantage of someone, to get what they want. Now, what happens is this guy Naboth has a vineyard right next to the palace, and it's evidently a choice piece of land, and Ahab wants it. He wants to make it a vegetable garden, and so he shows up with a, with a reasonable proposition. Actually, it's a good proposition. He makes a good offer to Naboth. He says, look, I will give you, if you'll give me this vineyard, I want this one because it's right next to my property, I'll give you a better vineyard. He's offering him a good deal. He says, if you don't want a better vineyard, I'll tell you what, I'll just give you cash, uh, the price for the value of it. And, and you know, presumably uh, Naboth would have been able to ask something of an inflated price. Money's no object to the king. He could probably ask what he wants. 
and uh, get money for his land. But he refuses to part with the vineyard. So Ahab, the king, uh, goes home and he is sulking. Look at verse 4. This is a very interesting window into what Ahab, the king, was like. It says, Ahab went into his house vexed. Clearly, we need to bring that word back into regular usage. He is vexed, and he is sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on the bed and turned away his face and would not eat. He's vexed. That means he's frustrated. He's frustrated because he didn't get what he wanted. He is, it says as well, he is sullen. That, that means he is depressed. He's gloomy. He just goes to bed all sad and turns and faces the wall and won't eat. Presumably if some servant comes in to bring him food, he just won't eat because he is having a royal, as the king, a royal pity party because poor Ahab can't get what he wants. Well, Jezebel, his wife, comes in and she inquires, why are you so low? Why aren't you eating? What's going on? And, and he explains to Jezebel what has transpired while she has been away. Now notice, when he tells Jezebel what has happened, he misrepresents, he misquotes Naboth, and that's a real key to, I think, understanding some of the text. He misquotes him. Look in verse 6. This is his explanation to Jezebel. He said, uh, I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard, uh, vineyard for it. And he answered, quote, I will not give you my vineyard. Now that almost sounds like Naboth's kind of selfish. I'm no deal. This is my vineyard. But that's not what he says at all. Look at verse 3. Uh, when he's approached and asked about making the trade or selling it, uh, he says, in verse 3, Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Unless we miss that, he says it again in verse 6. Verse 6, um, it says, the Lord, uh, no, I'm sorry, verse 4. Verse 4 again says, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He says it twice. The problem is not that he's sort of greedy or just doesn't want to make a deal the issue is that according to Naboth, this really isn't his to give. This is an inheritance. This is the inheritance of my fathers that was given to me by God. God had freed the people of Israel, freed them from slavery in Egypt, and he not only freed them from slavery, but he brought them into a land and he gave every tribe uh, a section of the land, down to every uh, clan, every family, a section of the land. That was their inheritance forever. God had ensured that they would always have a place to live. And there were certain sort of stipulations in the law. You could lease your land for a while or something like that, but it always came back to the owner. You couldn't sell it to the king to do what he wanted to do with it because it did not belong to the king. It belonged to your family. And so what Naboth is really saying is, I'm not, I can't, God forbid that I give you the, the land that belongs to my fathers given me, the inheritance given me by God. He actually says, Lord forbid that I would do that. Actually, the Lord does forbid that you give away your inheritance or sell your inheritance. It's forbidden in among other among some places, a number of places, but among them, Numbers 36. 
Numbers 36, 7. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So this was God's good gift that in perpetuity every family had a section of land. That's the law. But Ahab, the king of Israel, he doesn't care about the law. Nor does his wife care about the law, so he doesn't share that important detail. He just says, he does not want to give it to me. He will not give. He said, it's my vineyard. I won't give it to you. So certainly the passage has something to do with people in authority, here political authority, as God's delegated political authority, abusing, taking advantage of, uh, harming uh, someone in the kingdom, someone that they have authority over. But there's more to it than that, because ultimately it's also a picture of the persecution of the godly, because Naboth is far more godly than Ahab. Naboth, is his, his conscience is captive to the word of God. He says, I can't do this. You could give me a better vineyard. You could give me more money. Look at what he's turning down. Ultimately, he would be doing a solid for the king. If he gives the king what he wants, that's going to come back good on you in the future. Certainly, there's some time that you may need to go to the king and say, hey, remember when I gave you the land you wanted and we made that deal? Well, now I need some help. So it puts you in good with the king. He gets a better vineyard or cash to go use with what he wants it for, but he turns all of that down because he obeys the scripture that he cannot. Forbid it, Lord, that I sell this, and it cost him his life. Well, Jezebel can't believe what she's seeing. She has the common pagan view of the day, that the king is not subject to the law. The king is the law. And so she says to him in verse 7, hey, in essence, she said, aren't you the king? Do you now govern Israel? She says, arise, eat bread. Let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard. Get up. Quit moping around. Good, come on. This is pathetic. Just get up and be the king. I'll make sure that you get the vineyard. So what does she do? Well, she, she concocts this conspiracy where she forges letters on the king's letterhead with his seal. She sends it to the elders and the leaders in the city where he lives. And she says, look, here's what I want you to do. Get everybody together. Get Naboth at the head of the table and bring in a couple of guys that are worthless. That's the language, worthless. In other words, for a bribe, they'll come tell a lie that cost a guy's life. So come and have them tell a lie. And what are they going to accuse him of? Well, they're going to accuse him of blasphemy and treason. Look at verse 11. Uh, you uh, the, the two worthless men opposite him, let them bring a charge saying, you have cursed God and the king, take him out and stone him to death. So this is blasphemy. You've cursed God, you've cursed the king, and the penalty for that, that's a capital offense under the theocracy of Israel, capital offense, they're going to kill him. And that's exactly what happens. False charges, trumped up charges, they take him out, they throw rocks at him until he's dead. Now, 2 Kings 9 coming up is going to tell us as well that they kill his sons. It's revealed later in the scripture they kill his sons as well. Why? Well, because uh, he dies, the land goes to his sons because it stays in the family. If his heirs die, his sons die, then there is no one to take the land 
and the land is available for Ahab to go get it. What a web of evil we read about here. And it all starts with a desire, a desire that we can all relate to, a desire for something that the Lord has not given me but has given someone else. The Bible calls that coveting. It's the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife. It lists some other things. I think your neighbor's ox or something, his work, his tools or his, his, his job, his means of work. So you shall not desire what's not been given you. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's not been given to him. It's been given by inheritance to Naboth's family. And but because he covets and doesn't get what he wants, that leads to self-pity. So he comes home and he, he's in the sin of self-pity. And because he's weak and passive and his wife is strong and aggressive, it sets up an environment for her to act. It emboldens her to go and get the land for, the, the, the land for her husband. So that leads to deception, forged letters, which lead to a conspiracy of murder. Part of the point of this story is to show us how sin ultimately snowballs. It starts with, I would like that land. Well, it's not mine. It belongs to him. The law says he can't sell it, but it's, I like that. It's right here. I can have vegetable garden, fresh vegetables right out the back door, right next to my property. Shows us the sin snowball, that sin, one sin leads to another, and over time it increases and, and spreads especially for those who have the kind of power, can wield the kind of power, make the kind of decisions uh, that these two can. The passage also reflects our lot in this world. Throughout history, God's people have experienced persecution for their obedience. Naboth obeys God, it cost him his life. Now, what's unusual about this passage is that throughout history, uh, believers in Jesus have been subject to oppressive governments that have persecuted them for their faith in Jesus. It happened under Rome in the first century. It happens all over the world today. Believers don't enjoy the precious freedom that we enjoy to gather and worship like we're doing today. But that is generally the plot of this world is that we are opposed for following Christ and obeying his word. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. First Peter, uh, in the first century, there's beginning to be some persecution for the believers. And first Peter says in chapter four, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal you're experiencing. There, the people are, they're having their property confiscated for their faith in Christ. They're being opposed he says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening. We just need a shift in our perspective. What's happening here today, and for us, if you're from the U.S., all your life, this is strange. This is unusual. So many people, and it's a precious gift, so many people throughout history and throughout the world today are harmed, persecuted, killed for their faith for their faith. Not to say that we don't pay a price for our faith today too. There certainly are some costs, but not like what happened to Naboth or what have happened to many other people. The story also shows us that injustice flourishes not only by wickedness, 
because certainly Jezebel and Ahab are wicked, but also by weakness. Ahab is weak, and uh, ultimately it leads to his wife to do what she does in his weakness, but also the locals. They are passive. Verse 11 shows us that it is the men of the city, the elders and the leaders, did as Jezebel sent word to them. Now, I know it would be costly to go up against the king and queen, but when a government calls, someone in authority calls an individual believer to do something that is unrighteous, we must defy that authority. And so the authority here was to lie, deceive, have false charges, and have a sham execution to, to mete out an absolute injustice to this innocent man that is seeking to honor the Lord and his word. But they are willing to go along with Jezebel and to kill this man and his sons. Justice flourishes, in, or rather, injustice flourishes not only by rank, <clears throat> sort of wickedness, <clears throat> proactive wickedness and conspiracy, but willingness to go along as well. Well, we see what happens next is God brings justice. Look at verse 17, and it's, it's a strong justice. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you, I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me. And because you have made Israel to sin, and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Whoa. Whoa. Well, at the end of verse 16, it just looked like the perfect crime. I mean, who's going to know? The Jezebel forging for the kings, has this plot, this conspiracy. Let's, let's take care of him. And now his heirs are dead, and so, oh, the land's available. Well, the king's just going to annex that to his own property. It looked like the perfect conspiracy that no one would know, but God knows. That's what we're supposed to sense here. I think more than just sense and intellectually understand it. I think we're supposed to feel it. The language is emotive. God knows, and he's the God of justice. He is going to mete out 
justice. He reveals to his prophet what has happened. He tells his prophet, go down and confront Ahab for his sin. So it says Ahab is down in his newly acquired uh, vineyard, probably making plans to take out the grapes and put in whatever vegetables he's going to put in. He wanted it for a vegetable garden. So he's there probably making his garden plan, sketching his dream garden when all of a sudden uh, here is Elijah. You got to believe that he was surprised to see Elijah. He says in verse 20, have you found me, O my enemy? Well, he's only Elijah's enemy because he's God's enemy because he's abusing his power, because he's killing innocent people, because he's leading Israel to sin, is what the text said, both by implementing idolatry and by calling these local men and elders to execute an innocent person. So yeah, yeah, he has found you. Elijah has found you because God has found you. It must be startling to him to hear this message that how in the world could Elijah, who hasn't even been around, how could Elijah know that he killed someone and is now there to take possession is what he says. Well, Ahab finds out the reality of Hebrews 4.13. Hebrews 4.13 says, and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Elijah delivers the message that he could not know on his own, but only knew because God revealed it to him, and that reveals to Ahab and to us, God knows what happens in secret. What is hidden before others is not hidden before God. And this section on justice, we're to see that God saw Ahab. God saw Jezebel. God saw the men, the elders, the leaders of the city. And don't miss this, God also saw Naboth. God saw Naboth. He doesn't forget him under a pile of stones where he and his sons where their corpses rot because of the injustice uh, of their executions. No, God saw him, and, and we get that in the text in an unusual way. One of the ways that we know a point of a text or a theme of a text or something the Lord wants us to get out of a text is through repetition. And after he dies, in verses, let's go back, in verses 14 and uh, 14 through 16, there is this almost cumbersome usage of Naboth's name. So Naboth has been killed. Verse 15 is, they stoned him to death with stones. And then in the next three verses, after he's dead, six times his name is used. It just stands out. Look at verse 14. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. One author says, it is like Naboth's ghost haunts the scene and will not be laid to rest. He's dead, but his name just keeps, <clears throat> excuse me, showing up in the text. 
Naboth. God did not forget Naboth. It's important because this speaks to the church through the ages and believers through the ages who have experienced all manner of injustice to know that God sees not only those who uh, perpetrate injustice, but God sees the victims. God sees, God cares, God will bring justice. They didn't get away with it. And that is always the case. God will always bring justice, if not in this life, in the judgment to come. You know, it's a hopeful truth as we, as we just take in the stories of injustice all around us. It, it just feels like every day there are new stories of death and grief, innocent people being harmed in various ways. Uh, just recently, thinking about another, it's not the first, it's not unique, but just another repeated account of uh, sexual abuse within the church as the SBC report came out and people immediately began you know, talking one way or the other about it. But what we don't want to miss in an account like that is that God sees victims and God cares for victims and God will bring justice. The issue of abortion has surfaced in recent weeks strongly in the news again. And when we see things like that, we must be reminded that God sees the unborn and God cares for the unborn God will bring justice every day we see the stories coming out of Ukraine and, and the stories of women and children civilians being killed in a war and we need to remember that God sees and God cares and God will bring justice. It's built into the law of God. If you read the Old Testament, read the law of God. He gave his people special procedures and requirements and laws to make sure that justice was meted out, that there was fairness in judicial decisions, and that people particularly who lacked a voice There'd be special attention given to them. And that's why we see uh, the, the language of justice in the Old Covenant is, is spoken of about the immigrant because God cares for the immigrant. God cares for the poor. God cares for the widow. God cares for the orphan. God cares for the person who does not have a voice. And for those who have been the victim of any kind of injustice, and for those who, all of us who long to see justice done, a section of scripture like this tells us that when we thought nobody saw, God saw, and that God addresses it. God comes with this fierce judgment. You may have killed and taken possession of the vineyard, but you will die. And it's graphic. 
dogs licked up Naboth's blood and in the same spot, Ahab, king of Israel, got, the dogs will lick up your blood and every male descendant uh, who could come and rule in your place, they're all going to be wiped out. No one will come to power. Your house, your rule, your reign is coming to an absolute end. And by the, by the way, dogs will eat your wife is what he says. And in 2 Kings 9, that actually happens. Here's what he says to his descendants, verse 24. It's a curse. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. It's a picture of a curse that they will not be given proper burial, but will be treated, it'll be scavenged, just like someone dying out in the open. And we think, wow, do we really need that kind of graphic detail, Lord? I mean, is that necessary? This passage is to comfort God's people who have been persecuted, abused, treated unjustly by those in power. And it gives great hope because it reveals that God is a God of justice. They say, well, man, that's kind of gross language. Forging a letter, calling people to execute an innocent man and his sons, that's gross. That's offensive. What has, the sin that has happened is offensive. And so the judgment is... Well, it's quite specific and colorful. God knows, God cares, God will act. This is the hope of justice. And anyone who's experienced injustice can really see this and trust the Lord. We have no guarantee that ultimate justice ever comes in this life. And to some degree, every system in this world will have some injustice. Uh, because it is a fallen world. It doesn't mean that we're to be passive. It doesn't mean that we don't act uh, for justice, but it means that ultimately Naboth didn't, uh, didn't get, ju- there's no justice until he was already gone in this situation. But there is a hope of justice for all, and that applies to anyone who's experienced injustice. It could be someone who's experienced racial injustice or someone who is Um, mentally, physically wrestles with some disability that has brought about some injustice done to them. Could be a a child, as I mentioned earlier, who's experienced sexual abuse or a woman who's been assaulted by someone in power over her. All kinds of injustice in the world. And the good news is that we serve a God of justice. And actually, this is nothing, a passage like this is nothing for the Christian to shy away from. It's actually one of our calling cards that we don't live in a world with random acts of violence that go unpunished. We don't live in a world of randomness. We live in a world where God will ultimately bring justice to suffering people. I I read a, uh, I read a story this week that was interesting to me because it showed of like the evangelistic uh, nature of the God of justice. We often feel like Christians feel like, feel like we, we kind of got to explain for God, like God's got egg on his face and we've got to sort of, you know, explain for God. But a passage like this is really something that brings comfort to people who have experienced injustice and feel like the world is, you know, random and purposeless. So Christopher Wright, who is a, uh, an author and a theologian, He was teaching in India, and uh, he met a man at the conference in India uh, who was a scientist, I think a university chemistry professor, 
And uh, the man told him, I'm so excited to hear you teach from the Old Testament because basically this is how I became a Christian, uh, ultimately was from beginning in the Old Testament. And uh, this is what uh, Dr. Wright writes about the situation. He said, this man grew up in one of the many oppressed groups in India, part of a community that is exploited and treated with contempt, injustice, and sometimes violence. The effect on his youth was to fill him with a burning desire to rise up in his station in life, to turn the tables on those who oppressed him and his community, and to get vengeance. He threw himself into his education, and uh, his goal was to achieve the qualifications needed to gain power, and, 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 uh, uh, and thus the means to do something in the name of justice and revenge. He was contacted in his early days at college by some Christian students who had given him a Bible, which he decided to read out of casual interest, though he had no respect for Christians at all. It happened that the first story he read in the Bible was the story of Naboth, Ahab, and Jezebel in 1 Kings 21. There's an introduction, this passage, to your first Bible story that you've ever heard. He was astonished to find out that it was about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, and violence against the poor, things he himself was all too familiar with. But even more amazing was the fact that God took Naboth's side and not only accused Ahab and Jezebel of their wrongdoing, but also took vengeance on them. He was a God of real justice, a God who identified the real villains and who took real action against them. Quote, I never knew such a God existed, he exclaimed. He read on through the rest of the Old Testament and found his first impression confirmed. This God constantly took the side of the oppressed and took direct action against their enemies. He was a God he could respect, a God he felt attracted to, even though he didn't know him yet, because such a God would understand his own sense for justice. I never knew such God existed. That was his virgin reaction to the Naboth story. He got the point immediately. He wasn't converted yet, but the Holy Spirit's first nudge came via 1 Kings 21. Would that the long converted could see that the same clarity and thrill that Naboth's God is the true consolation for a fragile church in a broken world. He is our consolation, and he is the consolation for all of those like this man who became a believer and all believers all over the world today that are suffering for their faith at the hands of unrighteous governments that oppose their freedom to worship the Lord. Well, it doesn't end on justice. The passage ends revealing the mercy of God. Let's read the rest of the chapter, verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. That's a strong statement. Nobody's as evil as this dude in Israel right now. Uh, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? 
because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring this disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is the most surprising passage in the Ahab drama, really, because he hears from Elijah and he is broken for his sin. It says that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on and fasted. These are the signs of repentance. He, he is at least temporarily repentant. He is remorseful. We get this statement, it's in parentheses in the ESV, that he's the most wicked man in Israel. He hears the word of the Lord and he repents. And, and God speaks to Elijah and in essence says, can you believe this? Look at this guy. He is humbling himself. Now, God is still the God of justice. Justice will occur, but the mercy in this situation is that Ahab won't be around to see the ultimate justice uh, meted out for his sins. He shows wicked Ahab a degree of mercy, and he certainly gives him an opportunity to walk out that repentance. We don't ever read, unfortunately, that he, you know, gives up the land or whatever. We don't see any kind of uh, restitution. I guess the descendants were gone, but we don't see the fruit necessarily of repentance, but at least there's a mercy given him because he's initially responsive and while it's surprising that Ahab receives mercy, if we read this text and all the Bible correctly, we ultimately should conclude, it's amazing that I receive mercy. Somebody wrote, why should God have mercy on Ahab? We cannot understand this anymore than we can understand the mercy that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ, sending his only son to die for our sins on the cross. The mercy of God cannot be explained, but it can be received King Ahab received free grace because he was a needy sinner. If we are sinners too, serving the wrong master, waiting in the vineyard of our own sins to find us out, it is not too late for us to repent. It was not too late for Ahab, and if it was not too late for him, it is never too late for anyone. I love that language, that when we read this text, we should be cheering on the God of justice. We should be empathizing with the Naboths of the world, those who've been treated unjustly. We should be empathizing with them. We should be celebrating the God of justice. But at the end of the day, we need to realize we're all standing in our own vineyard waiting for our sins to find us out as well. It's not just about how bad Jezebel and Ahab is. You may not have conspired, I trust you haven't, I hope you haven't, conspired to murder someone like he has. But we all know the general categories of their sin. We know what it's like to chase other gods. We do it all the time. We have all kinds of God substitutes in our lives, just like they had Baal. We know what it's like to covet. We know what it's like to live in self-pity. We may not know what it's like to murder, but we know what it's like to be fiercely angry with someone, which Jesus said we committed murder in our heart when that happens. We know what it's like to be greedy like them. We know what it's like to, to be deceptive like them, to try to do things in secret and not be found out. We too have our sins waiting to find us out as we stand in our own vineyard thinking it's all hidden. And God comes with his word and exposes our sins as well. And the beauty of it all is that there is mercy available to anyone who will receive it from God. All we have to do is acknowledge our sin. Ahab acknowledges that he's wrong. 
We must acknowledge our sin before God and receive his forgiveness that comes to us in Jesus Christ. And here's the beauty of it all. 1 Kings 21 shows us injustice, justice, and then mercy. But there's a place in the Bible, injustice and justice and mercy are on far greater display than here, and that's in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is treated unjustly, false witnesses come against him as well and charge him with blasphemy as well. He is treated unjustly. The innocent one at a human level, according to human law, the innocent one is crucified. And as he is on the cross, there is justice being done because God gives our sins, puts our sins on Christ, and judges Christ for our sins. Jesus is in his own actions innocent, but he receives our sins upon himself. And God treats sin. He punishes sin. He pours out his wrath and judgment on sin on his own son who is buried and then raised from the dead so that today anybody that will trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we receive mercy because justice, God has taken his own justice. The son has paid for our sin. There is injustice in his trial. There is justice as he who knew no sin came to be sin and, and took our sins upon his place that we might be the righteousness of God. There is mercy for everyone who would believe. And so as we stand in our own ill-gotten, stolen vineyard of secret sin ourselves, The light of God exposes our sin and calls us to receive the free gift of eternal life. He calls us today, and if you're already a believer, he calls us to return again to his mercy, to return again to his mercy. If the musician, Tim, the band, whoever's playing, if you guys would come up. We're going to close today with communion because it is in the work of Jesus we get this powerful picture that God does pour out his justice on his son. And here's the reality for every one of us. We will stand before God on the day of judgment and we can receive justice for our sins, which we deserve, which means condemnation forever. Or we can cry out for, uh, in this life, if we have cried out for Christ to take our justice, for Christ to take our penalty, for Christ to take our sin, then we receive mercy. Everyone receives mercy or justice, and mercy comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.